If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our study through the Word. So you'll remember that it was there in the synagogue when Jesus heals on the Sabbath that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, in their heart, they determined that Jesus is dangerous and, and that he must be put away. And, and it was really from that point forwards that Jesus' ministry changes. And, and we saw that he is going to continue to minister to the multitude but he is going to focus really on his disciples. We saw one of the changes in his ministry that when he does uh, minister to the multitudes that he begins to speak in parables now. And uh, last chapter we saw a bunch of those parables and we uh, looked at them and, and had Jesus interpret them. And, and so we began to uh, look at the building of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. We see that Jesus was instructing and teaching now what the kingdom of God is like. As the nation had rejected the invitation of the kingdom, we see that now it is up to each and every individual to receive the, the kingdom of God. And, and so once you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you now have entered into the kingdom of God. And you now are experiencing exactly what Jesus was talking about when he says that the kingdom of God is like. And, and so how is the kingdom of God going in your life? How is the kingdom of God within your heart? Is it growing? Is it expanding? Are you seeking now to have more and more of Christ and less and less of yourself? And, and so the kingdom of God, Jesus is speaking about that. You'll remember that he returns back to Nazareth and there he was rejected. And, and so we saw the rejection, the final rejection of Jesus there in Nazareth. As we come to this 14th chapter, we see that Matthew now is going to talk to us about John the Baptist. You'll remember John the Baptist. He, Jesus said of him that he is, of all the men ever born under women, he is the greatest uh, of them all. And, and so we see that John's birth was amazing. It was miraculous. You'll remember how Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were married. Zacharias was a priest, but they were barren. They had no children. They were well advanced in years. And, and the lot fell for Zacharias to be able to offer that incense there in the temple. And it was then that the angel came and told him that they were going to have a son, that he was to be separated unto the Lord, that he was to be a Nazarite from his birth, and his name was to be John. And, and so tremendous, miraculous birth of, of John the Baptist. You'll remember that Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, how she she was privileged and blessed to be able to minister to Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she came and visited her as well. And, and so John, the son of a priest, but he doesn't follow into the priesthood. God calls him out into the wilderness to prepare him to be 
a prophet. And so uh, mighty in stature, he grows up eating uh, honey and wild locusts. And, and suddenly he erupts uh, onto the scene at the Jordan River. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at uh, hand. And he called the nation to repentance. And the, the nation hadn't heard from God, hadn't had a prophet in 400 years. And, uh, and they come out in, in mass. And, and John the Baptist Baptist is baptizing them. And and you'll remember that there in the waters as John is baptizing them that Jesus shows up. You'll remember that they had asked John if if you are the Messiah. And he he said, I am not the one. There is one coming after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal latch I'm not even worthy of unlatching, whose winnowing fan is in his hand. And uh, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And, And the next thing you know, there is Jesus in the baptismal waters approaching John and John has a word from God this is the Messiah and and as Jesus approaches him he says am I to baptize you I I, I am the one that need to be baptized by you and and Jesus looks at him suffer it to be so for now that all righteousness might be fulfilled and and he takes the Messiah he takes Jesus and he baptizes him in the river Jordan and as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open up in the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. And, and, and Jesus then is led by the Spirit, you'll remember, out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he comes back, John's still baptizing, calling everybody to repentance. And, and when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And he points his disciples to Jesus. He continues baptizing, and Jesus begins his public ministry, baptizing there in the same Jordan River just down the road. You will remember that John ends up being arrested by Herod. Now, the Herod that arrested John the Baptist there was Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king over Israel when Jesus was born. And you'll remember it was the Magi that come to King Herod asking, where is the king that was born? And it was the king Herod that ordered the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. This was the father of of uh, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a tetrarch. He was a, a ruler over the quarter of the nation of Israel. His territory was Galilee. And you'll remember that Jesus' earthly ministry was mostly centered there in Galilee. And, uh, and so uh, Herod, uh, the tetrarch, uh, Herod Antipas, he, he had married an Aretan princess. She was the princess of an Arabian king. He was the king over the territory where Petra is located and, and that to the east of the nation of Israel. But he travels to Rome, his brother Philip, 
is there in Rome. And, and Philip has this wife, beautiful wife named Herodias. And Herod Antipas falls in love with, uh, with Herodias. And, and he seduces her away, has her divorce Philip. And, and he comes back and, and he puts away his wife as well for no cause and sends her back to the king and back to her territory. And, and he now has Herodias as his wife. John the Baptist declared that that's unlawful. That, that is not within the law of God. And, and he tells Herod, cries out against this marriage. But Herod and Herodias don't like anybody speaking against their marriage and against their plans. And, and so Herod now takes and, and he puts John into prison. You will remember that it was while he was in prison that John sends two of his disciples to Jesus to just ask him one more time, are you the one or is there one coming after you? Are you the Messiah or, or are you the forerunner? Is there another one that is coming after you? And you remember how Jesus, he healed the, the, the lame, the sick, the, and those that were blind and deaf. And he says, you go back and tell John the things that, that you have seen and the things that you have heard. And, and they go back to John who is still in prison there in Macherius. But uh, John ends up uh, being executed by Herod there in the, the fortress where he was being kept. And, and Matthew records the details for us here in this 14th chapter. And it begins in the first verse where it says, And at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and Therefore, these powers are at work in him. And so, here we see that Herod had had John the Baptist executed, but he hears all of these reports about Jesus. Now remember that he's the ruler over Galilee, so the reports of the miracles and the crowds and all would have come to the ears of Herod. And, and suddenly now, because of his guilty conscience, he thinks that it's John the Baptist and now who has been raised from the dead. It's interesting that during John's life, he didn't do any miracles whatsoever, but Herod concludes now that the uh, risen from the dead version of John the Baptist is clothed with a, a greater power than he had had uh, uh, while he was living. And so he now believes that, uh, that John the Baptist uh, has been risen from the dead. In verse 3 it says, for Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. And so we see here that John the Baptist takes and tells Herod what the word of God says that this is not permissible within the will of God, that the word of God speaks against this. 
And we see that because John the Baptist now tells him what the word of God says, we see that here he puts him into prison. It says that he wanted to put him to death. It says that he had murder in his heart towards John the Baptist, but he feared the people. He was a, a man pleaser and he was worried about what the people were going to think because they esteemed him to be a prophet. And so we see here that, that when truth is not on the side of the argument, then the only thing that's left is force, is power. You see, here Herod cannot contradict the prophet. The word of God was clearly against uh, him taking his brother's uh, uh, wife in this uh, situation, unlawfully putting his uh, own wife uh, away. And because Herod now did not have truth on his side, he had to resort to force. He had to resort to power. It was true back then. It is true today. We are living through an example of this right now with the whole transgender issue. Truly, the word of God speaks clearly upon this. In the beginning, God made them, male and female, and his likeness uh, he made them. And so we have the truth of God's word that is very explicit and very clear on this matter. But today in our culture, there is the disregard of truth. There is the setting aside of truth. And when you set aside truth, then you are going to use force in order to push through uh, your agenda. We see it being forced into the schools. We see it being forced into the work environment. We see it being forced uh, into our culture today. And so when truth is not on your side, uh, then you are resorting to force uh, to push forth uh, an agenda. We see here that, uh, that there was murder within his heart. He wanted to silence the voice of opposition. He wanted to use his voice to, to silence the, uh, those that would dissent and to remove this conversation from the public marketplace. And so here, threatening death, but afraid uh, now uh, of the fact that the people viewed him to be uh, a prophet. It says uh, now that Herodias was the one that was uh, behind this, and, and so she forcing the uh, hand of Herod, and, and she looking for an opportunity now to permanently silence the voice that would be critical of her uh, or that would threaten the agenda through which, which uh, she has. Her opportunity comes. It comes when Herod has a birthday, the other Gospels tell us that he invites uh, everybody to this big birthday bash uh, that he is having. All of the nobles are there. All of the most important people are there, and they are at his birthday. And it says in verse 6, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. We see here that for a, a royal princess to dance in public, this was unheard of. But for her to do the type of shameless dance that she was doing, a provocative dance, they had feasted, they had now been drinking, and now she comes in and, and entertains them with dancing. 
Herodias' daughter is Salome. She is the daughter of Philip, Herod's brother, who he took the wife from. And she is said to be about 16 years old at the time that she is here at his birthday. And so he pleases Herod, and therefore he promised with an oath, an oath that was given in front of everybody to give her whatever she might ask. In the other gospel accounts, he says, I, up to half of the kingdom, and tell me what you would have and I will give it to you. The half of a kingdom was an expression that simply meant that you have found favor with the king and ask whatever it is and, and I will give you. And suddenly now there was collusion between the daughter and uh, her mother. And we see that uh, he says in verse 8, So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Herodias was a, a woman who didn't hesitate to use her own daughter in order to push forward her, her, her own vindictive uh, agenda. It would have been bad enough if, if she herself had sought ways of, uh, of taking the life of John the Baptist, but to use uh, her daughter, it was infinitely worse. I read a quote that said that there is little to be said for a parent who stains a child in order to achieve some evil personal purpose. And I thought about that uh, and the way in which uh, Herodias uses her daughter now in order to advance uh, her own circumstance and situation. And, and I thought that there was a, a warning that, uh, that is available to us today. There are times when marriages fail in, in broken homes where parents begin to use the children uh, to weaponize and to send messages and back and forth. And, and they put the children into the middle of these uh, adult situations and circumstances. And, and these scriptures are just a, a warning, just a remembrance to us to keep the children as children and to not put them into the middle of affairs of adults and, and parents. But Herodias stoops to it and conspires now with her daughter Salome. And, and now her daughter asks Herod in front of everybody, give me the head of John the Baptist on this platter. Herod didn't want to kill John the Baptist. He just didn't want John the Baptist to be speaking out. But now he is put into a, a situation whereby a rash oath now either has to be honored or he has to recant it and, and ask her that, uh, let's see what your second choice is. And, you know, and stand up to that circumstance and situation. He would lose uh, some status with the nobles that were there. He would definitely pay a price for doing that. Uh, but uh, he would be doing the greater in order to lose the lesser. 
we see in verse 9, it says, and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And so we see that rash promises and, and even oaths uh, are never an excuse for doing the wrong thing. We see that he, in order to keep now his reputation, he orders the death of a prophet, of a righteous man, of an innocent man, because he had said that he would give this girl whatever she asked. It says in verse 11, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. A platter. The head of John the Baptist was placed on a platter. And it was brought to Salome. And Salome takes that platter and then brings it to her mother in order to please her. We see that there is no great ceremony, no great burial for John the Baptist. His death, beheading, is an ignoble way to die. And yet we see that the world and the kingdoms of this world are in complete opposition to the kingdom of God. Jesus uh, said that you cannot be friends uh, with the world uh, and live in the kingdom of God. For these two are at war one with the other. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And here we see the way that the world treats, listen, the greatest of all men that have ever lived from the time of Adam all the way to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, don't be surprised when the world hates you. They will hate you because you represent the kingdom of God and the world wants nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The world wants nothing to do with the standard of righteousness that is in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world doesn't want anything to do with the, with the law of God, with the accountability of God. But yet it is righteousness that exalts uh, a nation. And so we are living in a time when, just like Jesus said, don't think it's strange when you are persecuted. He says, they, they hated me, they're going to uh, hate you. John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus Christ is crucified. And that for loving the world for being the pure, perfect instrument of God here upon this earth to bring his love and his truth to the world that is around. John the Baptist's disciples, they are given the body of John the Baptist, it says, and then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus tells us that don't be surprised when we are persecuted, Remember that he said, be of good cheer. 
He says, for I have overcome the world. John might not have gotten his recognition and his treasure here in heaven, but I guarantee you there was a glorious welcome of John the Baptist into the kingdom of heaven. And we also will receive a like reward when we enter into the kingdom of heaven uh, as well. The disciples come and they bury John the Baptist and And then they have to go and to give Jesus the news. They travel back to Galilee and Jesus is there in Capernaum. The disciples had been sent out two by two, you will remember, and now they have come back with their reports. They had been given power over sickness and disease over the demonic realm, and and now they come back to share their stories and to tell Jesus the events that have happened. The crowds are pressing around Jesus. The disciples are returning, and, and Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been beheaded all at the same time. Jesus decides to push back from the crowds, to (coughs) gather his disciples and to get away to a deserted place, a place where they could decompress, where Jesus could hear their stories and where Jesus could process now the end of the life of John the Baptist and the end of his forerunner and the end of that ministry and the ramifications of his own timetable and of the cross that waited for Jesus. It says now in verse 13 that when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. There in Israel, Capernaum is uh, over on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And, and so Jesus pushes back from a boat and he heads over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to the deserted section over there. But when the boat heads out across, you can see exactly the trajectory of where the boat is heading. And so the crowd of people, when Jesus pushes back, they just follow along on the northern shore and they run around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus gets to the other side, they're like, surprise, we're here. When Jesus departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus is processing the news of John the Baptist, and yet he is still able to see the pain and the suffering of those that were around him. He gets out of the boat and he doesn't get back into the boat and go further down. He doesn't dismiss the boat and, or dismiss the people and say, you know, I just need some time. He didn't put himself above uh, others even though he was uh, hurting himself. He set himself aside. Looked and saw the compassion of the hurting people around him. And he ministered to them. The sick, he healed, and the multitude is there. And it says, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. And send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and and buy themselves uh, food. 
evening is coming and they are over on the other side and there's nothing over on the other side. There aren't uh, any fast food drive-through windows. There's no restaurants. There's no markets. There's no nothing. But the people aren't leaving. If Jesus is there, they're there. And the disciples know that unless Jesus dismisses them, they're not going to depart. And so the disciples come and tell Jesus, it's getting late. Give the word. Tell them to depart, that they might go and be able to, to find food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. The answer wasn't for them to depart from Jesus. He says, you give them something to, to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said to them, bring them here to me. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. In the other gospels, it lets us know that he sat them in groups of 50 and groups of 100. And so the, the people sit into these in groups uh, now. And, and he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and gave the loaves to the disciples, blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And so there is this in, incredible feeding of the 5,000. It says, and so they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. And now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides uh, women and children. And so an enormous crowd, 5,000 men, another 5,000 women is 10,000. They estimated another five to 10,000 kids. You're looking at about 17,000 people that were there. 17,000 people. I want you to try and imagine what that number looks like. T-Mobile Arena holds about 17,000 people. The Golden Knights had their season opener here just the other night. And, and the way they started the season opener is they introduced the players one by one, beginning with the lowest number on their jersey to the highest number. And as they called out their name, they skated out and they then formed a circle at center ice around. And, and finally, they had the, the whole team there in a, a circle at center ice and then the entire arena. And I looked down and I thought, you know what? That's what the disciples looked like when Jesus was feeding the, the 17,000. Here's this small little girl, 12 people. 17,000 people and no concession stands. <laughs> Just you 12 go and feed every single person that is in here. And Jesus and took that provision and he, he, he broke it and he multiplied it and <laughs> put it into baskets and they went and they delivered the baskets and listen to this. And it says, and they were filled. They were filled. 
That word filled means that they were completely stuffed. They were completely full, like after a Thanksgiving meal kind of full. They didn't take a little crumb and eat it and say, yes, thank you, I'm full, that's nice. And they weren't, pl- this, and this is my suspicion. I don't know this for sure, but I got a suspicion. When they tasted that bread, it was the best bread they've ever tasted in their entire life. Have you ever been to a restaurant that has really good bread to where you can't stop eating the bread and then finally they bring you the meal and you're not even hungry. I need to take a cuckoo bag because the bread was so good. I think that that's what's going to happen in heaven. That, that bread, I think, was the best bread they ever tasted in their entire life. And they filled up, it says, until they were full. Not only full, 17,000 people all ate, completely full, and leftovers now. Twelve baskets of fresh. Anybody? 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 No? Okay. And they collect now these fragments, fill up the, the twelve baskets afterwards. And we see the provision of God. In this, we see the way in, in which God meets our need. Not just meagerly, filled and then extra, left over the, the fragments afterwards. And whatever your need is today, know that our God is able. Amen? He is an able God to provide, even when it doesn't look like there is provision, even when it looks like it is meager. What is meager in the hands of God is more than sufficient for each and every one of us. As we close our study here, I wanted to draw our attention back to verse 17. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. The five loaves, the bread, is what caught my attention. He multiplied the fish, but he multiplied the, the loaves, the bread. And we see that throughout the scriptures, we really see God using bread as a, a symbol. Bread is the, one of the most basic dietary items that there is. In, in fact, bread is such a common item that, that it is actually almost a synonym for food itself, well beyond bread. We say that we're going to go break bread together. It means we're going to go eat a whole meal together. It means we're going to fellowship together. It doesn't mean we're just having bread. And, and so bread in a larger context context is just emblematic of food itself. You remember when Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. Remember that Egypt is a typology of the world. And, and when God takes his people out, it is now a typology of us getting saved. We now were called out of the world to be God's people. And you will remember that there was the Passover meal. And in the Passover meal, they had bread. But there was something special about the bread. The bread was to be unleavened. And you'll remember that leaven is a typology. It's a typology. It represents a evil or sin. Uh, and, and so we see that there was to be no sin. There was to be no leaven in the bread that now uh, we were to eat as, as we come out of the world and we leave the world behind. God brings the children of Israel out into the wilderness, out uh, of the world, and there God provides for them. And do you remember what God provided? God provided the manna. Uh, 
that every single day that the children of Israel would go out and, and God provided bread. Bread that came down from heaven, if you will, kind of from a mist just kind of formed on the top of the ground. And, and every single day, God fed them with bread. That bread nourished their bodies and, and it kept them alive. It was the physical sustenance that, that God used to, to keep them alive for those 40 years out in the wilderness. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. And we see that Jesus now is talking about the, the spiritual relationship. He is the spiritual bread. But he makes the analogy with physical bread. And just as physical bread will keep your body alive, will keep you functioning, so also there is a need for spiritual bread. When you were born again, you became a spiritual man. You became a spiritual woman. Now, your physical body still needed physical food, but you've been born again. And now this spiritual man, this spiritual woman, it also needs uh, sustenance uh, as well. And Jesus says, I am that bread now. I am that spiritual sustenance that, uh, that will sustain you. You see, Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. He's also the word. I am the way, the truth, uh, and the life. He is the living word of God. And in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was in the beginning with him. And nothing that was made was made apart uh, from him. He is uh, the living word of God. And so we see that this bread of life, this spiritual manna, this is all referring to the, the word of God. It is the place now where, where we partake and, and where we are strengthened. And, and Jesus put it another way. He said that if you're not partaking of the, of the bread of life, he says that, that you're not going to be able to be sustained. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branch. And unless you are connected to me, you can do nothing. You, you will have no strength. You will have no vitality. If we're going to walk in the Spirit and we're going to be led by the Spirit in our life and we are not going to be carnal, but we're to crucify the flesh, then we are going to need to be strong spiritually. And the only way to be strong spiritually is to, is to feast upon the, the Word of God and and just as those people that sat on that in the hillside and, and were filled, so also for us to be filled uh, with the Word of God. And so the, the time that we spend, how important uh, it is. You remember that Paul would liken the Word of God to milk all the way to meat. Writing to the Corinthians, he says, by now... You should be eating meat, but I have to go back and, and feed you milk still because you are still babes. Speaking about them growing and maturing in the, in the word of God and the sustenance of the spiritual man. 
What is your relationship to the Word of God? What is your feasting, your eating, your partaking habits on the, the Word of God? And, and here, this passage speaks to us about the, the need for us, every single one of us, no exceptions, to be connected to the, the Word of God. I also see it speaking to each and every one of us about serving God and, and being used by God to be a part of the, the kingdom of God. The disciples were there and the need, 17,000 hungry people, and, and the need was great and, and they had but five fish and, five, two fish and five loaves of bread. And, and what was that for the sufficiency of such a large number? and the inadequacy of what they had in order to be able to minister to the need of the people. And I think that that just speaks to the way in which when God calls us to be serving in the church and, and serving the body of Christ and, and to be serving others, that, that we can look at ourselves and say, I really, there's no place for me really to serve. I don't really have any gifts. We look at ourselves and I think that oftentimes we're quick to say that, you know what, I'm just, I'm just five little loaves and two fish. I, I don't have any great skill. I don't have any great ability in order to meet the need of the, of the people. We can look at ourselves and say, you know, I'm not really qualified. I, I'm not really spiritually mature. I don't know the entire Bible in Greek and in Hebrew yet. You know, I'm not, I'm not ready to be teaching or, uh, or serving. And, and we put these limitations. We look at ourselves in the, and we declare that we are just meager. But what did Jesus say? He said, bring them to me. Bring them to me. Whatever gift, whatever talent, whatever ability, we, we look at ourselves and we say what we don't have. But Jesus says, what do you have? I just have this. He says, put it in my hands now. And when you put the meager into the hands of Jesus, then we see what Jesus can do with it. Do you know that every single one of us have gifts? And people say, well, I don't know what my gifts are. And the first question is this, what do you like to do? That, that's the first question. What do you enjoy doing? What do you love doing? What, what's your natural ability? What do other people know you to be? And, and you say, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm an organizer, you know? And it's like, organizer, that's a gift, you know? And they don't even feel like they're working. It's like, man, this is a mess. They're like, no, it isn't. Look at you just, see, that was fun. <laughs> To the person who doesn't have that gift, they, they think it's fun. They think there are people out there, I'm not going to point fingers, that think it's fun to organize things. Uh, I'm like the most disorganized person. It is like work for me, you know, to go through a pile and to make other piles of my piles. And then I just lay my piles on top of it. I don't want you touching my piles because I know what's in my piles, even though it looks like it's a mess. Uh, so, you know, welcome to my world, you know. And then, and then there's people that know how to like put that all and then they can get anything they want and, and they think it's fun. There's people that just are friendly. They're the friendliest people on the face of the earth. 
Do you know what? That's a gift. There's people that have the gift of hospitality. There's people that enjoy cooking. There's people that enjoy baking chocolate chip cookies. That's their gift. <laughs> Everybody knows. Do you want chocolate chip cookies? This is the person. And you know what? That's a gift. They love doing it. And they're fantastic. At, at doing it. That's your gift. What do you love doing? What do other people know that you're good at? What do they always say? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that you dot, 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 dot. You're dot, dot, dot. <laughs> God placed that inside of you. And it's a joy to do it because you, you're good at it. You enjoy doing it. That's what's the loaves and the fish that are in your hands. And Jesus said, no, bring it to me and I can use it. You see, it's not, a, it's not suffering to serve Jesus. It's not suffering to come and to, and to let him use your hands and your feet. He lets you do what you were created to do, what you love to do, and you find a place of now doing it for the body of Christ. Now you're doing what you love to do, but you're doing it for Jesus. You take those five loaves, those two fish, so insufficient to, to meet the needs of the entire body of Christ, but you put it into the hands of Jesus and and watch Jesus bless the body through the gift that you bring to him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And God, we ask that you would just continue to, to show us what our gifts are. And, and Lord, that we would all join together in the body to build the body of Christ and to use those gifts that you have given to us. And, and Lord, just as disciples, as followers, as learners, Father, you've called us to, to partake of, uh, of the spiritual manna that comes down from heaven. May we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. May we continue to partake of the uh, word of God and the necessity of putting that word into us on a daily basis. And so, Father, salt our tongues. Give us a hunger and thirst for the uh, word of God. And may we not be surprised when the world doesn't applaud us for living a life that's pleasing unto you. But, Father, may we know and may we live not for the applause of man, but for the smile of you. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.